as Lynn introduced, uh, one of the things we wanted to cover was to understand and think through and uh, hopefully um, discuss and uh, get to a place of common understanding as to uh, where's God's place um, in, our, um, in our transformational work? How much of it is our responsibility? How much of it is God's responsibility? Exactly where, what fits where and why? Now, while getting onto this, I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a picture in, in, in the next page. Uh, remember, this isn't, what I'm trying to do is not theology. Because it's very easy to sort of fixate around the picture and say, this is all there is. It isn't. It's an interpretation of what, um, how I've made that simplistically. Does it cover the entire picture? The answer is no. The second thing to think about is, uh, we are all on that journey, but in different places. So depending upon where we are, our perspective and our understanding will vary as well, both in our Christian walk and in our, you know, in our walk as, uh, as uh, in the daily ups and downs of life. So depending upon that, what we see is likely to be different. So what I really would love to do is for people to think about this and <clears throat> you know, come back, um, ask questions, let's discuss this and get to a place of common learning and understanding of what Jesus said. Because remember, a lot of this, I mean, most of this, if not all of this, was, was written 2,000 years ago in a very different context to a very different community. And one of the things that Christianity today struggles with, one of the many things Christianity struggles with today, is relevance. It's not about the truth. It's about relevance. How is that of any use to anyone today? And that is the biggest challenge I think we've got as Christians. It's not about authenticity. It's not about serving. It's not just about giving. It's not about community gathering. It's not about worship. It's about what's the point of all of this? That's a separate subject on its own. So I won't talk about that today. But I want to cover, uh, I want to, as I say, put that picture and that description up and cover one in detail and one half of it. And hopefully I'll be able to do the other one next week. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Right. So this is my picture. So we had a discussion around this in our, uh, in our Bible study in the morning on Sundays. It's very lively. You should, you should come. And uh, particularly when Steve is around. So it's, it, it can get quite uh, lively, livelier. So it's good. So what, what's, what's the picture that's, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that I've tried to put up here says? So there are two parts to this. One is about Atonement, and I'll, I'll explain what that means, yeah? We sang a, a few songs which were sort of confirmatory for me, which was about, okay, sin. Ever since Adam and Eve listened to um, the serpent and fell, humankind and God have been fundamentally incompatible. We cannot coexist in the same place with God. And that is what sin has brought about. It brought about division, separation, 
and a, a place where God could not coexist with us. And that's because of God's nature. It's not God's problem. It's God's nature. The Bible says, righteousness and truth are the foundations of his throne. Which means, God set rules by which he would play. Okay, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. So what Jesus did was he took our place through the death on the cross. So that's what we call atonement. And I will, as I say, talk about this from, particularly from Leviticus 16. At the other end, right, so let's take an example. Let's say someone breaks into my house, takes something. I choose to forgive him. That does not pay for the damage. I can choose to forgive. But that does not pay for the damage. So, wasn't just about forgiveness. It was also payment for the damage. By the way, it wasn't just about forgiveness and payment for the damage. Imagine if I say, okay, you've got no place to live. I'm actually going to offer you a place in my house and put you up in a room inside the house. That is what God has done. So what he's done is, he's paid for the damage, he's, he's forgiven, he's paid for the damage, and he's given us a place. That is what the relationship as God's children is about. So it's not simple, if it were only forgiveness, if it were Forgiveness plus payment, our place is not in heaven. Does that make sense? We can be forgiven, but not get there. Because God can turn around and say, actually, I don't want you here. I've forgiven you, which means I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to throw you into hell, but you're not welcome into my house. But God, through his infinite mercy, has chosen to do all of it. Now, how does this happen? And I, again, there are two parts to this. One is this, is, this is sort of Martin Luther's trap line. Justification by faith. So it's not about simply about what we do. It's not about prayers and penances and sacrifices and you know, being born in the right family or you know, fasting for 40 days, etc., etc., it comes through having faith in God himself. However, that alone isn't enough. The second element to that is, that transformation or change within happens because of the indwelling power and the work of the Holy Spirit. So we can see all three people in the Godhead at work here. Jesus died and gave his life for us so that our sins are forgiven and paid for. The Father invites us to partake in his house, heaven. So he's done that. The journey is twofold where we through faith accept and receive 
justification or an easier word, righteousness that God gives. But equally, the transformational work, the change is his job as we cooperate with him. Now, good works of fruit is a God-purposed outcome. It's an outcome, but it's God-purposed. So it's not, I do this, therefore I get this. That isn't fruit. Fruit is what Jesus spoke about him being the vine and us being branches and the father being the wine dresser. So, and I, I, will, I, will, I will, as I say, expound on this. We are often, and, and the church is not immune to this, other faiths of the world are not immune to this. We try and earn righteousness. So if it's Hinduism, the way to earn righteousness is, is partly by giving alms, going to the right holy places, going at the right time, being born at the right family. There are a set of rules and regulations by which we obtain a better birth and a better birth and a better birth and then eventually get there. So the onus is entirely on the individual to make the change. Now, what Christianity says, what Jesus taught is fundamentally the opposite. What he said is, you can't make righteousness, you can't earn righteousness. You can be given righteousness, you can take up righteousness and allow that righteousness to change you from within. That is the fundamental difference. And it's a two-way process or a two-way relationship where the vine and the branches coexist. The branches feed off the vine. The branches are grafted into the vine and over time acquire godly character. Paul talks about how we are wild branches being grafted onto the vine. Now, when you graft a wild branch onto a vine, the the, the wild branch has its own signature, has its own kind of leaf and may produce fruit or may not produce fruit, may produce something else altogether. But after it is grafted, over time, the nutrients from the vine flow into the branch and vice versa. And then over time, the branch becomes part of the vine. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit. That two-way transformational work then is the job of the Holy Spirit. Let me touch on atonement and then go to the next one. So I was actually looking at scripture to see is there one verse that can cover it. Right, Hebrews talks a lot about how Jesus is superior to the angels, how Jesus is superior to Moses, and how he as the um, high priest uh, went into the place of, uh, um, of uh, sacrifice and offered himself. There's one verse that sort of captures this essence, and it says, with one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
touches on the two things I spoke about. Made perfect, which means it's a done deal. It's a one-time thing. But that's not the whole story. Being made holy, which means it's ongoing. It's every day. It's every hour. The reason I said, I, I initially said that it, this isn't theology is because over time, people have emphasized different things to different degrees. And the problem with overemphasis on one or the other is that then it becomes a cult. So let's say the emphasis is on made perfect. There have been branches and cults that have sprung out of Christianity where, which have said, it's all a done deal. You don't have to do anything. Just live the way you are. Jesus has died for you. Done. Job done. That is only half the story. On the other hand, people can say, actually, what he's done is done. Let's not talk about that. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. Think about the church from round about the latter end of the second century till about the 15th century. That's what they did. Yeah. You've got to pray to the saints. Fantastic. You've got to, you, have you done a big sin? Okay, you, this is what you need to sacrifice. Have you done a smaller sin? This is what you need to sacrifice. By the way, you don't get to heaven. You get to a place called purgatory, okay, which is sort of halfway house. Where did all this come from? It all came from the principle of, actually, you're not there yet. But it's human interpretation of you're not there yet. So emphasis on either side is dangerous. What's the one word that's really important in all of this? Balance. So that's why I sort of put that, you know, it's sort of equal on either side and the arrows go both ways. Atonement and restoration go hand in hand. And what people don't see outside is transformation, is what the Holy Spirit does within so that our internal man, inner man is changed and then brings out the good works, things that we never could possibly do. Peace, happiness, lack of fear, uh, joy, um, handling uncertainty. These are all things we don't have the capacity or we may have limited capacity to deal with. Dealing with grief, dealing with loss. These are all things we may not be able to do on our own or we may have limited capacity to do on our own. But that's what the Holy Spirit through the power of his internal work brings within our lives. Right, so that's atonement. Now if you turn to Leviticus chapter 16... There's an there's a, there's a, um, example of how this works. This worked when God instructed Moses. Right. So, it talks about two lambs or goats. Right. So, let me just skip straight to. So, Leviticus 16.15. Then you shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its, bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as you did with the blood of the bull. 
and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Right, so that's a part. Now let's move to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. It's this dual job that Jesus did. He died so that we can have a place at the mercy seat. But he also took all our sins and was the live goat sent into the wilderness. So one is about mercy, the other is about forgiveness. Just on that picture then, that's where the word scapegoat comes from. Yeah. Because everything was put on there so you, you could kind of bypass it. Yeah. yeah. Very good, yeah. So that is, a, that is the principle of what Jesus did. Right, so what, what I wanted to talk about, now this is, this is something I want to focus on next week. But we are, a, sort of a, we are a church family and many of us have probably been Christians for a long time. So what I wanted to talk about was, once I finish this, is about righteousness. Gerald spoke about uh, scapegoat. Let me try and explain it in the simplest possible way. So I play chess. I don't know how many of you play chess. There are rules of the game that are set. And I'll think of playing chess with the law on one side and you know the, the, uh, me on the other side. Every, both of us get 16 pieces. The rules of the game are set, yeah. Um, and you know, you sort of play against the other. The trouble is, we can't win. The law, of, the law is proposed and made by God. We cannot fulfill it. Fulfilling here means basically trying to get a draw. It's not about beating it, by the way. It's about trying to get a draw. Yeah, can't do it. Yeah. For, because A, we are inadequate. B, uh, because of our sinful nature. The, God has made laws and provisions for everything. See, by the way, the law is good. The law is righteous. It was the right thing to do. That is why God instituted it. The law is not wrong. It's just that we can't get there. So what Jesus did was, basically, he said... Let me take your place and play in your place. Does that picture resonate? Yeah? So 
what he did, he did not break the law. He did not nullify the law. He fulfilled the law. Which means for every rule that the law had, he had a counter move. Every rule, remember that was set by God himself. So he was part of the, he, he really was judge and jury then. Yeah, he was, he was the one who set it. Now he's the obedient servant trying to fulfill it. And he did. And he said, he also said, don't think I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he fulfilled it. And by fulfilling the law, through the mercy offering, through the scapegoat sacrifice, he opened the door for us. And said, right, I've done it. Now the door's open. Come on in. That is what atonement is about. While a lot of other faiths talk about sacrifice, yeah? Sacrifice exists in most communities and religions or non-religions. It's not new. But atonement for sin exists as well. Atonement for a place in God's house does not exist. So what's unique about Christianity and the gospel, God not only says, I cancel. God not only says, I forgive. God says, I actually want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be my children. That is why the sacrifices of bulls and goats were not enough. Let's read a scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Okay, if, if anyone finds it, can you read it in a couple of translations? Thirteen. This is the NIV. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us. Yeah, go on. So the NLT, you were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Amen. Thank you for that. So he cancelled our sins by nailing it to Christ's cross. So he didn't cancel it by going around the law. God did not use a backdoor approach to say, fine, I'm going to let you in into my house. By the way, let's use the back door. No, he didn't do that. He didn't break his own laws. He fulfilled his own laws because of the death of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled his own law by allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us, change us from within. 
and take us to where he is. So God in all of this, we must remember, has a method or his methods to change us and make us suitable, if you like, for his place. It comes because of um, us uh, listening to, us uh, accepting by faith that he can indeed forgive and change and transform us. But it also comes because of us allowing him to work. So a famous verse, yeah, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about offer yourself. So that is the active voice. Offer yourself as the living sacrifice. But verse 2 says, be ye transformed. That's passive voice. Does that make sense? So what that means is, one is on our part to do, be ye transformed. It doesn't say transform yourselves. It says be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means the transformation comes from within through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's really important to understand the balance because if we don't get the balance right, we can swing one end to the other. And you will see as I talk, our tendency is to swing from one extreme to the other because that's human nature. That's fallen nature. Yeah. Um, in the Bible study we were discussing this morning, you know, God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments. What were the people of Israel doing at that time? They were building two golden calves. Yeah? Why? Because they wanted something that they could touch, feel, worship, be with. Something they had created. And that's true for God's laws as well. What God makes descriptive, we can turn it into prescriptive. And say, this is, this is how it should be. A, B, C, D, E. And then it no longer, it, it changes so much over time that it no longer represents the heart of God. Where is it written anywhere that we have to pray to St. Augustine? But that became practice. Yeah? Where, 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 where does Saturday confession to the priest exist? That's what it became. And if we are not careful, we can go down that same path. Yeah? I'm not saying all hell breaks loose. Yeah, yeah, there's no rule, no regulation, no method. That's not the point. But if we are not careful, we, we can very quickly swing to two extremes. Let me talk about, because as I say, we are a church community of people who have known, most of us, uh, uh, the gospel for a while. I want to talk about righteousness and justification. Okay? One of the key pillars of the picture uh, I put up. Now, there are multiple um, um, passages here. So let me explain a little bit. I'm not going to go into the depth and detail of each of those. So let me try and explain this. The first one is a parable, Matthew 20. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's only found in the book of Matthew. Right. Now, people who read this parable and look at um, equal pay or... Uh, minimum wages may look at it and, you know, the, the, there might be multiple interpretations. What's the story about? There's an owner of the vineyard. He goes out. He actually needs people to work in his, in his vineyard. So he goes, looks for some people. 
in the sixth hour. So six in the morning, let's say he goes, finds somebody, gets them in. Every hour he goes out and then brings people in. At the eleventh hour, like Gerald was saying about scapegoat, the phrase eleventh hour actually comes from this parable. So at the eleventh hour, he gets somebody as well. Then at the end of the day, he starts to pay people. So basically, he pays the, the fellows who, who've, who've done their job for, the one, for one hour a certain amount of money. But then he goes back for, and then pays those who work for two hours, same. Four hours, the same. Nine hours, the same. Now, not surprisingly, those who worked nine times more than the, the 11th hour workers asked the question, how is this right? And that might be the question we may choose to ask as well. The purpose of the parable is not about work and reward. That's the thing we have to remember. The purpose of the parable was to say, was to explain to people or explain to his disciples that whatever God gives is a gift. We are all 11th hour workers. Yeah? There is a, there is a very interesting phase in that, in, that, uh, in that parable I like. So if, if I just turn to Matthew chapter 20, I will read it out for you. And that's, why I, that's why I think... It's, it's particularly for Christians who've been Christians for a long time, it's difficult to, um, to fathom. Basically, he says, I have agreed a wage with you. I'm just paying the wage I agreed with you. What's your problem? Now, here's the phrase. It's, this is verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? That's a real challenge for Christians. He was talking to us. He is talking to us. What he's basically saying is, look, you guys have faithfully served for how many, how many ever years and decades, and you've given your time, you've given your money, you, 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 you've sacrificed multiple things. Somebody accepts Jesus on their deathbed. Is it right that both should get the same reward? It's a very important question. That's where the whole justification by faith will be tested. Now, this is, it's part of our human nature where we think, I've done so much more. Where's my reward? But then righteousness does not come by what we do. The fundamental principle of the gospel is you don't earn righteousness or a place in God's kingdom because of what you do. You and I, we don't. I don't earn a place in God's kingdom because of what I do. I've said this example multiple times. I'm going to say it again. So two years ago, 
um, I, had a, I had a serious heart issue and I, I was hospitalized. Um, I mean, miraculously, you know, God brought me out. The friend of mine who took me to hospital, nine months down the road, he had a heart attack and he died. Right. Am I more righteous than him? Why did he die and I didn't? Does that make sense? Yeah? You, we cannot equate time with righteousness. We cannot equate heritage with righteousness. Because it cannot be earned. It is given. It's a fundamental teaching of Jesus. That's why that yellow box is there. This is like a chess game. So what Jesus is saying is, look, these guys, Pharisees, what do they do? They wear the right clothes. They read the religious books inside out. They know it by heart. They observe the Sabbath. They fast. They give to the poor. They pray. They pray loudly. They pray the right prayers. They go to the temple how many ever times of the year. They observe all the festivals. And then Jesus said, look guys, your, your righteousness has to exceed that. <laughs> so what do we think? We think extrapolation. We think, okay, how do I get a little bit better than that? What Jesus was talking about was not something a little bit better. He was talking about something, he was not talking about something that's incremental. Let me put it that way. Something that's a little bit better than Judaism. He was talking about something that's altogether different. That is why it's called the good news. Otherwise, if it's a little bit better, if Christianity is a little bit better than Buddhism or Hinduism or for that matter Judaism or Islam, it's not enough. It won't be enough. Now the challenge for us to think about it during the week is, have I in my life made it just a little bit better than what it is meant to be? Or has it fundamentally, transformationally changed my life? If not, we are no different. We can't earn righteousness. And I think that's a, it's a very humbling thing to think about. We cannot earn righteousness. Remember, Ephesians 6 talks about taking, you know, being a soldier. What's the one thing it says? Take up the breastplate of righteousness. Which basically means it's given. The breastplate of righteousness, available, ready, take up. We can't make it. We can't create it. We can't add to it. The trouble we have is that we worry, or, or the tendency, I think it was said beautifully in the Bible study a couple of weeks ago, we often worry, gosh, how is that fair? Doesn't appear very fair, doesn't it? That's where we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do a deep work within us. I, I really do think we need to allow the, God, the Holy Spirit, to touch and change us. Because the last thing Jesus wanted to do was to create another religion. The, because religions exist. 
That is not what he came for. What he came for, for was to change lives. Let's take a radical example out of that. I've listed a few there. Let me take two. Now, Matthew 19 talks, talks about this man who's, a, who's, who's rich, who's young, who's a ruler, who's male, who observed all of the commands since a young age. In other words, he is a pretty good chess player against the law. He would have given a law, the law a run for its money. But what Jesus was saying was, Jesus touched a raw nerve with him. And he actually walked away. However, this is the contrast, isn't it? In the gospel we find again and again and again. Here's a man who's cheated everybody, taken money, you know, he's, he's, he's almost the equivalent of Bet365, yeah? Zacchaeus. Yeah, he's almost like one of these online betting shops. So that's what he did. Take people's money, paid some of it, kept a little bit of commission and became very rich. Universally hated, had no friends. The first thing Jesus says is, come, I want to stay in your house. And then the transformation happens. So think about, I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. The fellow who's kept the law all through his life walks away. The fellow who accepts Jesus and allows him into the house is changed. That is the gospel. That is true Christianity. That is change. Which means, you know what? If we get there, I think we are going to be surprised who we find there. Very surprised, I think. And I'm going to say one more, one more story and then allow us to pause for thought and then continue this next week. Let's take the parable of the two sons. One of them did everything right. He had the father in the house, worked hard, took care of everything, multiplied his wealth. The other one probably didn't do anything and basically said, give me, give me my share. Normally in Jewish customs, shares given after the father's died. So basically he was saying, what he was saying is, you, I don't count you alive anyway. Give me my share, let me go. And then of course he, uh, you know, he, he basically blows everything to, with, by gambling, prostitution, and is left with nothing. And then comes back and says, let me at least find a job to work in my father's, um, um, you know, one of, his, one of his fields. But the father does something remarkable. Brings him in, puts on his own robe, and kills a fatted calf. Now, before we get on to the elder son, where does the fatted calf come from? It comes from what the elder son owns. Because the father has given his share to his younger son. He doesn't have anything. So if somebody has to come into the kingdom, somebody's got to pay. That is the, that is the universal principle. Forgiveness is okay, but somebody's got to pay. That's what they did with the fatted calf. However, 
The elder son's response is remarkable. I mean, with the benefit, we are reading this with the benefit of hindsight, right? So what he says, all these years, I have slaved for you. So the elder son's instantaneous response is, you've never had a party for me. You've never done anything for me. I've slaved for you. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done that. I've, I've, I've preached at Northgate Church 20 times, you know. You know, all, all of the big lists come down. But Jesus ends the story with no resolution. Only one of the two sons participated in the feast. Wasn't the elder son. No wonder the Pharisees were indignant. I mean, if, if, if I were sat there, <laughs> I would have thought, where is the justice in this story? Doesn't feel right, does it? But that's God's heart for us. It doesn't feel right. He made it right by his own death. It didn't feel right for him. It was not right for him. If it doesn't feel right for us, it definitely was not right. But he made it right by atoning for it. By redeeming us through his blood. And through that, open a door for us to have a place in God's kingdom. There are lots of passages there. Please read about it. They are all study in contrast. Yeah? The woman with the alabaster box. I mean, she's a prostitute who goes, who has a very expensive box of oil, breaks it open, pours it on Jesus' head. People sitting there wonder, they, you could have sold that for a large amount of money and given it to the poor. Were they right? Actually, they were. Do you see what I mean? There are, it's, they are all contrasts. No wonder Jesus' teaching didn't fit. Actually, I would challenge us to say, if we as a congregation existed at that time, it wouldn't have fitted our thinking either. And that's where I want to pause and say, where are we on this journey? Elder son or younger son? If younger son, the repentant younger son or the reconciled younger son or the younger son who's still in the field. Is that a good place to stop? Yeah? Something to think about. As I say, I want it to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. Just for us to think about God in his mercy makes these things open to us. We wouldn't have had uh, this but for the work of Jesus on the cross. But let's think it through. Pray over this. Hopefully there will be more questions, thoughts. And uh, you know, feel free to share, uh, discuss. And then uh, let's take it. Because if the gospel is truly what Jesus said, it will transform people's lives. It will bring those for whom, who, who, who've got no chance. That is the job of the gospel. Let me stop there. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, through your infinite love, mercy, you chose to put yourself in our place.
You atoned for our sins. You took our sins into the wilderness and you paid for it through your life. Equally, this righteousness is not righteousness by the law, but righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Let this righteousness grow within us, bear desired fruit, and change us individually and as a church community to bring hope, peace, and change. In Jesus' name, amen.